Arlene's got her finger on the pulse of Canada. So <laughs> the whole country, whole damn thing. Welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again here on Barnyard Language, or if this is your first episode, thanks for joining us for the first time on Barnyard Language. Katie, what's happening on the farm this week? Well, Arlene, uh, we all overslept this morning, and so I was just out feeding cows, which is why I was late to come in and record this with you. Other than that, we got our first frost yesterday so harvest has picked up some as things are starting to really dry down um we're done combining corn so we're on to picking corn because we grind our own feed we have to we pick um, ear corn to grind for cows and for sheep so we're filling cribs my mom's here playing monster trucks with the kids this morning which is nice and i'm going on my annual pilgrimage today with one of our listeners actually um to Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, uh, hub of the known world. Um, New Glarus beer is my favorite, and it is only manufactured and sold in Wisconsin. So every year when they release my favorite of their beers, I drive over to Wisconsin and stock up and drive back. It's a little ridiculous. but What's um, the favorite? Fat Squirrel Nut Brown Ale from New Glarus Brewing. Um, oh. One of my very favorite maternity photos was with the girl child at about uh, 36 weeks pregnant in Stark's Sports Shop in Prairie du Chien, which is where I'm going this morning. They sell boats, bullets, and booze. And in the photo, I have a huge <laughs> a belly and two six packs. Um, I thought it was real classy. So Arlene, no what's, happening that day. what's happening in your world? Well, we're right on the same schedule. It seems like uh, we got frost last night for the first time. So that's uh, a little bit crispy looking out on the grass. We uh, moved some cow, dry cows and heifers that had been on pasture for a while back into the barn because they were starting to look at us menacingly and uh, looking for a warmer place to sleep at night. So mm -hmm. they're back inside. And yeah, this week seems like it's been a little bit more low key. Uh, our, one of our splurges in the barn is satellite radio because we only get one local channel mm -hmm. on the radio station. And when you're in the barn a lot, sometimes it's worth it to, to have a little bit of variety and not just the same local guy talking all the time. He's lovely, but I mean, we want more music, less talk. The cows yeah. need it, right? So this it's week we've cows. been listening to, yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. This week during morning milkings, we've been listening to the 90s station. So it's felt we're about the same age. We're in our early 40s, young 40s. And um, it's been like a high school dance <laughs> every nice. morning listening to the, the classics. I told told my husband the other day that as it, a song came on that I was too legit to quit. And uh, he just said, OK. And then a few seconds later, he was like, what was that you just said? It's like I was trying to make a joke. I, I know you were just 
<laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we have satellite radio for much the same reasons. Um, and, you know, I listened to a lot of the, the prime country station and the other day it's, they said something about, you know, country from the good old days. And I was like, this song is from like 93. Like, <laughs> I'm apparently very old. Great. You know, like, those who were the good old days. They were the good old days. Um, we need more puppy pictures too. Oh, that fish. one of him playing hide and seek the other day with you is just, <laughs> oh my God. I just love too that his head was where the eyes of Lightning McQueen were. He's <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. just so cute. We're uh, not letting him, he's only in a, you know, allowed in a couple of rooms at this point, and I don't foresee him going beyond that for a little while yet, because when the gate, the baby gates happen to get left open, he does this because all the rooms are connected, our house is in kind of a square, mm-hmm. so he'll take this mad dash through the laundry room, pick up whatever he can find on the floor, and then just keep running uh-huh. <laughs> in the circle. It's like, I got something. <laughs> I don't know if it's a sock or a shirt or what, but I grabbed something. Oli still does when he's feeling a little anxious, he'll carry off a sock or something. And, you know, you'll tell him to drop it. And he's like, I didn't even know it was in my mouth. And then he'll just walk away. It's like, <laughs> all right, that, that never happened. Okay, buddy, whatever. So how long is the drive today? Oh, it's like 30 minutes. It's not. Oh, okay. We're real close to the border. You're crossing state lines. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, Amanda Donlin, who listens to the show, shops at Aldi a lot because she only lives like 15 miles from the from the state line it's the closest mm-hmm. Aldi it's also in Prairie du Chien. so okay a couple times a year we try and make a a trip of it and yeah she'll cool. have her two little boys along because it's harvest so mm-hmm. uh, thankfully mom was able to be here with our two because the idea of taking four <laughs> children <laughs> under five to go Aldi, pick up beer <laughs> And end of the liquor store. Yeah, see, <laughs> yeah. a little. Because um, her oldest is two weeks older than Charlotte, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I held him, I was still pregnant. And so he was, you know, up on top of my yeah, belly. Yeah, sitting on, <laughs> on the, the shelf. The second time I saw him, we had two babies. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it's good. And then I guess the guys are going to keep picking this afternoon. And pretty sure I'm getting an ear infection. So I'm not sure what to do oh. about that. Sometimes it seems stupid to go to urgent care, but it seems stupid to let it wait for the rest of the weekend too. Yeah. Do you get them often? I haven't had one in a long time, but I tend to get a lot of sinus infections. Right. I'm going to take some more decongestants and see if that helps clear Mm -hmm. things out. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they aren't free to create. Katie and I would appreciate your support as we work to build the Barnyard Language Community. Patreon is an easy way for you to make a contribution that goes directly to making this show. There are three levels of patrons. If you join at the farmhand level of Patreon, you get early access to episodes and the chance to give us input on upcoming shows. At the percolator level, you can listen to our mistakes, and there's a lot of them, see video content like the Rabbit Agility class, and access quarterly instructional videos. At the good shit level, we will give you naming rights on livestock, barn cats, and future children, invite you to live chats with us, and regular updates from our farms. So I get the uh, honor of uh, introducing our guest today. So our guest is AJ Adams, and AJ is a communications professional and social change advocate based in southwestern Ontario. 
He currently works as a communications officer for a research institute for aging in Waterloo and is the co-founder and chair of the Equity and Diversity and Inclusion Committee. AJ also serves as the president and board chair of the Stratford Pride, Perth Pride, and we thank AJ for joining us today. So we asked the same opening question of all of our guests, and that question is, what are you growing? So while many of our guests are farmers, this question also works well to cover the ways you're growing in your career, um, in advocacy, maybe some plants, um, pets, anything like that. So AJ, what are you growing? Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, what I'm growing is social change in rural Ontario. As corny as that sounds, um, it's something I'm very passionate about and I think it's something that a lot of folks are um, really interested in, especially within Southwestern Ontario, is seeing the growth of uh, social change. And specifically, as why I'm um, joining you two on the podcast today is to chat about LGBTQ um, uh, issues and, and um, the social change within that uh, community, within uh, rural communities. So, AJ, as part of our um what is now becoming just a running thing. Where in Ontario are you and where is that from the rest of the world? Since I have <laughs> no idea how big Canada is. No worries. Yeah, so as Arlene mentioned, um, I'm in southwestern Ontario. So um, I currently live in Stratford, Ontario and grew up in Kincardine, Ontario. So those are both within southwestern Ontario. Uh, so for folks who uh, don't know anything about Ontario, I am in the um, southwestern rural area of Toronto. So where I where I am, I'm about a two and a half, three hour drive, depending on traffic, uh, to uh, downtown Toronto. So for reference, that's about six, seven hours from me. Katie asked, a while, Katie asked a while ago, if I was to come to Canada, how far away is Thunder Bay from your place? I was like, <laughs> well, uh, Google Maps says about a 16 hour drive. So I might not be meeting you there for lunch. Probably not. No, we're quite big up here. So, AJ, where are you from um, Detroit then, or Michigan generally? From uh, Detroit. So if you cross over uh, the border into Windsor and you drive right up Lake Huron uh, for probably about two, three hours, you'll um, hit a little rural beach town called Kincardine. Um, and that's where I'm, I'm from. Okay. Yeah, we were discussing the general unfairness of a country the size of Canada being split into mm. nine pieces. That's yeah. it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have some thoughts about that. We asked you to join us today to talk about some research you've been doing with regards to pride and the LGBTQ plus representation in rural communities. Can you tell us what led you to pick pride as an area of study? Yeah, so um, there's kind of two rationales why I kind of uh, went into this research uh, field. So one is um, on top of working as a communications professional, I'm also completing my undergrad uh, degree in sociology. Um, so part-time on top of my full-time work. So this was originally just part of a, a like an introduction to research type course. And the course uh, basically said, find a topic that you're passionate about for this project um, and follow like these kind of steps on uh, like research 101. So when I was trying to figure out what topic I'm, I'm passionate about, I'm thinking, okay, I love dogs. Like, do I do research dogs? That's kind of silly. So I was really kind of thinking about my own personal experiences growing up as a closeted gay kid in 
a small 6,000 person town in, in rural Ontario. And I started thinking what, like, what kind of research uh, questions would I want to know based on that experience? So I um, kind of narrowed it down and figured out that pride is something that is new. So like pride parades, pride festivals, that's a new concept for small towns. So what kind of impact is that um, actually have on those small towns? So um, I ended up doing my research project on exactly that. So um, does pride make an impact on rural communities? So from that, the results and just the, the findings within that, it grew more than just a class assignment. It's grown into something that I've used in my role as the board chair of Stratford Perth Pride and helping uh, my hometown pride and a bunch of different rural organizations as well. It's really just grown and um, it's an area that there is a lot of um, knowledge gaps because there's a little bit of research on rural Ontario and, and just rural communities. There's a little bit of research on LGBTQ, but when you look at rural and LGBTQ as one piece, there's very little research at all. So it's, it's, there's this big, um, again, just knowledge gap in, in that area. So it's really kind of checking off a bunch of boxes. Um, and, and that's why I've kind of um, continued to do this work um, not in and outside of uh, class. So this project I handed in about a year and a half ago and I'm still continuing the research, still doing follow-ups, continuing to do uh, webinars and additional research as well. What were some of the questions you asked in your study and what were some of your results and did anything surprise you? Uh, yeah, so I asked um, some of the, like, the generic questions just to see who was actually filling out uh, the survey. So questions around sexual orientation, questions around um, gender identity, how long folks have been living in their community, and then um, questions around experiences. So um, when do people first come out? So there's kind of that movie TV kind of storyline of the kid from the small town goes off to the big city to college and and comes out. That's my own personal story as well. And that's something that is true. So uh, 55% of folks um, said that they came out um, when they were off in the, in the city, whether it was for school or later in life. Um, some folks came out later in life when they came uh, back to the rural town. Um, I also asked things like, what are the largest uh, barriers for uh, LGBTQ folks? Um, if they've experienced hate speech around their sexual identity and, and orientation. And, and um, again, questions around my actual kind of research statement. So what is the impact of pride in rural Ontario? So um, questions around um, safety and acceptance and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, one thing that I found quite interesting, excuse me, that 87% of uh, respondents of LGBTQ respondents specifically said that they had experienced some form of hate speech in their small town. So whether that's um, in their home, at the workplace, while they're walking down the street, they've been called a slur or um, have had stares or sometimes physical violence. So 87% of those folks um, have experienced that. Um, for those individuals who are living in rural towns that now have some kind of pride festivities um, or a parade, 33% of them said that pride actually has decreased hate speech in their mind. So, that, so that's a significant amount of people who are saying that, you know what, pride is actually making our communities a better place to live because hate speech is going down. 
one of the questions you asked in your study was, if your town's pride was around when you were younger, do you believe it would have eased directly or indirectly your, indirectly your coming out journey? Um, how would you answer that question? Do you feel like it would have made a difference in your life? Yeah, so one of the questions, or sorry, one of the reasons why I actually asked that question is because it's something that I've debated my entire kind of adult life and, and thinking back to um, would have made the di a difference. So um, Concordia Pride was my hometown. They're extremely successful and I've seen them being welcomed with open arms. So would that make a difference? So in my mind, it would, yes, I would say yes. And a majority of respondents said so as well. And it's, and it's um, partly to do with, again, those kind of um, impact results like decreasing hate speech, increasing um, safety and acceptance. But part of it too, and, and a big part that I talk about with um, kind of the small town and, and the rural um, LGBTQ stuff is it's not talked about and there's no vis visible um, representation. So it's, it's not something that you can relate to. So when I think back to myself in um, high school and my preteen years, when I was first starting to question, okay, am I straight? Am I gay? Trying to figure that out. I couldn't, being in a small town and walking down uh, my main street, there were no pride flags. There was no rainbow crosswalk. There was no um, gay couples that I knew of. There was no um, pride celebrations at all. Even for one month of the year, there was nothing. So just walking down the street, I could never really identify as being anything but straight. So it really made me think, okay, there is no other uh, for my sexual um, identity um, during that time. And then um, again, just going to that kind of movie stereotype, when you go off to the big city where um, the LGBTQ community is more prevalent and you see a pride flag year round, you see pride festivities um, being celebrated in June and, and things happening um, again, every street corner and every part, part of the year, you start to say, you know what, I'm relating to that for whatever reason, or it's just saying, oh, there's a rainbow flag. What does that mean? And then you start doing just some Googling and then some self-discovery within that. And you think, you know what, I can relate to that. And I'm not, I'm not straight, I'm gay, or for other people, it could be around gender identity or different uh, sexual identities. So we're seeing that pride in rural towns is, is copying what is being um, so successful for the LGBTQ community in um, cities. We're seeing that with um, pride flags and crosswalks and just a um, pride flag being raised at, in front of like a community center or city hall, it's creating a sense of folks being seen um, with, within their communities. AJ, one question I had was that, you know, talking about the other, that one thing it feels like we're hearing a lot of is, well, there wasn't, there's never been gay people in rural areas. And I mean, that's clearly bullshit. But what response do you give to that? Because it's rude to just tell people that's bullshit. Yeah. So it, it kind of just goes back to that point of, it's just never been talked about. And it's, um, so there, it's, there's kind of two parts to it. There's the more quote unquote traditional um, kind of identities within the LGBTQ umbrella. So um, lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, um, those people have always existed in every sexual orientation and, and gender identity has always existed in every pocket of every uh, corner of, the, of this planet. 
it's just, it's not talked about. And so maybe some people have um, been gay, but have just suppressed it so much that they end up marrying a wife and having kids and dying, like dying a happy life, even though they weren't fully happy. And it's, that's a reality that I've talked to a lot of um, older adults in rural Ontario that have come out um, because of their um, rural pride organizations being like, I divorced my wife for 30 years because I'm finally going to live my true self as a gay man. And it's like, it's heartbreaking in one sense, but it's also so wonderful that someone is like, you know what, I'm, I can finally be myself. So, and, and then on the other end of it doesn't, it doesn't exist kind of myth is a lot of people say, oh, like non-binary didn't exist back then and, and pansexual and, and all these kind of newer identities that we talk about. And it's the only reason they didn't quote unquote exist is we just didn't have terms for them. So it's like even a term like non-binary. So someone who doesn't fit the, um, the perfect definition of a man or a woman for those individuals, it's just, there was no label for that at one point, even like 20 years ago, um, someone who fit the non-binary label label would just say, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not male. I'm not female. Maybe they would present a certain way just because of the societal pressures and, and the, safety they would present more masculine or more feminine for for whatever reason but um yeah it just there was no label for it and so now it's we're at a place where new kind of identities are are being defined and some people also say i don't care what i like i don't care what my sexual orientation is i am a human i like other people that's it i don't need to have a label and that's another part of it too that i think a lot of people especially in um rural communities and agriculture because of that kind of proudness of tradition um, that we see it's it's kind of going against that and so I think um, rural towns are having a little bit more trouble of of understanding that so that's why a lot of times um, small town folks kind of default to that statement of oh that didn't exist before and it's like again it did it's just now we're talking about it yeah and I think especially I mean I'm 40, so I'm older than you are, you know, and I was active in our school's Gay Straight Alliance. I had a lot of gay friends in high school, lived in, you know, a town of 50,000. And I don't remember there being anybody who identified as anything but, you know, gay, bi, straight. Um, I don't think there were even any openly, openly identifying as trans kids in our class. Um, but I think, you know, if you're still living at a time and a place where there's not even that recognized umbrella for these things to fall under, it's real hard to get a nuanced name for different things. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and I think like you said in your study, too, when there's a, a lack of services sometimes or often in rural areas or or lack of therapy or even. Um, medical professionals who understand where people are coming from or, or the types of services they're looking for, then sometimes there is that, you know, wait until I get older, wait till I move away mm-hmm. from a rural area and then figure it out. Yeah. And it's, and I talk to a lot of uh, uh, people about that issue around social services. And um, I, I have a, a acquaintance who who's trans and um, he like he's from a rural town and he was always nervous of going to the doctor especially early in his transition because it's one he didn't know if um, his family doctor would be accepting so that so that's a big um, issue but it's also just 
does that family doctor in the small town know about trans health? Because it's when you are, uh, so, so um, this individual was, um, was born um, with female genitalia, so born with a vagina, so, but identifies as a man. So how does a doctor who's never, maybe has never met a trans person, how does a doctor navigate um, that with keeping bedside manner? And so it's quite difficult. So um, my friend like really um, kind of repressed the, the transition until he moved away and, and got a job in Toronto and, and said, you know what, there's doctors here who specialize in um, LGBTQ health. I now have access to, to folks um, who can support me, not only just from a accepting and welcoming point of view, but actually understands how to talk to me about my health. So as parents or just as community members, allies, whatever, people who aren't necessarily in that transition place ourselves, um, how can we best support and encourage medical professionals to gain that knowledge and experience? Because I don't want that, you know, 15 year old kid who's overwhelmed enough to be the first person that this doctor hears from about this, this issue, you know? Um, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on how to support medical professionals and other professionals in being able to address these needs. Yeah, so education across the board, so whether it's health professionals or your local politicians or teachers, anyone who's, uh, anyone in the community, but especially those who have some form of power and control over society and individuals, they really need to be um, learning and constantly learning. So um, medical professionals, they're always learning about uh, the newest pieces of whatever their um, medical practice or, or specialty is. So, but they also need to continue to learn how to properly support um, LGBTQ folks through different health practices. And um, it kind of just goes back to what I've kind of identified in my research is there just needs to be a conversation and things happening around LGBTQ stuff in rural communities. Because if all of a sudden a small town is having pride raising a rainbow flag, um, having, I don't know, a drag queen night every month and, and that kind of stuff. There's a conversation in the community and doctors play um, a huge role and medical professionals in general play a huge role in, in community life, especially in small towns. So when that conversation is happening and um, you can start having those conversations with those um, health and social service providers. And as we know, in small towns, everyone knows everyone. So if it's I'm out at the grocery store, I'm gonna run into the doctor and we're gonna chat about life because that's just the nature of small towns. And we can chat about, oh, hey, did you see that raising the pride flag next week? You should go as the doctor and that kind of thing. So um, it's just encouraging anyone again, who's in those positions of power uh, to educate themselves. And um, just sometimes they might be resisting because they're like, you know what, we're a small town. We don't quote unquote have any gay people in our town. But again, you just need to educate to being like, Okay, maybe we don't know anyone who is out and proud, but doesn't mean we don't have anyone. What other factors would have made it easier for you growing up in a rural area or what kinds of things do your respondents say would have made things easier growing up? Or like you said, for people who are coming out even later in life, what kind of support or services would they have wanted? Yeah, so one of the questions that I asked in my study was, um, what is the largest barrier to LGBTQ folks? 
um, in rural Ontario. So I'd asked uh, a couple, or I had a couple options in the question. So there was religious and or social conservative views, remoteness uh, to LGBTQ uh, services, lack of diversity in rural communities, um, and then the small population. So meaning the general population or LGBTQ community specifically, um, or all of the above. So over half of the respondents in my survey said that of religious and or social conservative values is the number one barrier. And that's something that I always worried about when I was um, thinking about, okay, am I gay? Um, because it's, again, there wasn't like the anti-gay preachers in my town, but there's um, there's a church like every couple of blocks in my hometown. And, and it's kind of just that stereotype. And you see movies and TV that, oh, like the church hates gay people, small towns hate gay people. And it's just this really negative narrative but it's as I've gotten older and, and returned to small towns and I live in a small town again now, it's, I've learned that that is very much a myth. And it's, yes, there are people who have strong anti views against LGBTQ folks. A lot of people default to their conservative values or their religion, but there's also a lot of people who say because they are conservative or because of their religion that they love LGBTQ folks. So it's those kind of like, outside the box kind of allies and partners for the LGBTQ folks, I think are groups that we really need to um, target and, and have conversations and build bridges with. So that's why I was so excited when um, uh, you folks reached out to me uh, to join this podcast because agriculture is not an audience that you would normally think of when you think of pride. When And it's, um, I've done another media interview recently and I used the example of, imagine that, closeted gay kid who loves the farm uh, culture. They really, really want to take over their family farm. It, they would be the seventh generation uh, farmer of their family farm, but they know they will never be accepted because they are gay. So that kid has two choices, live their true authentic life and lose the farm or stay closeted and take over the family farm. So how do we make sure that kid gets both? It can be something as simple as Put a rainbow flag on your on your tractor, take it down to the pride parade, and just drive it down the street. It's as simple as that. Just seeing that the agriculture community and that local farmers are supportive of diversity is just a huge thing. And, and again, it's not only supporting the LGBTQ person, but it's also helping uh, rural communities in general because it's there's this huge kind of um, negative stereotype from city folk. It's that small towns equal small minds. And that's something that I say all the time. It's no, we are small towns with, with big hearts. And it's, we really need to nip that kind of negative narrative in the butt that um, LGBTQ folks are not welcome in rural communities. So it's, um, that's something that I would really have appreciated if I had known back when I was struggling with my uh, sexual identity back when I was um, a teen. And I think it would really help a lot of people nowadays as well. I know um, in our small town, we go to um, United Church of Canada congrega congregation that went through the process to become a, an affirming congregation. And there were some, you know, I'm going to stereotype here and say some of the older people who are saying, well, we welcome everyone. Why do we need to go through the process to becoming affirming? And mm -hmm. so through that purpose, through that process, there's a lot of of steps that include education and guest speakers and, you know, 
opportunities to to study what the Bible does actually say and what it doesn't. And there's a lot of a lot of leaps in in theology where where there are, you know, some people claim that that Christianity is anti-gay and it's not. Um, I mean, so I think it was it was an interesting process to go through and it's been neat to see how churches in some communities have become part of pride in a big way. Like, for example, our congregation has hosted the potluck at our small town pride for several years. And, and there's a member who's on the pride committee, you know, kind of all the time. So, um, and then having signs up during pride and always having a rainbow on the window, those types of things like you were talking about can just create that visibility. And I guess, like you were saying, you know, let people know that it's not all not all churches and not all people have those views. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of folks kind of think that you have when you come out, if if you come from a religious background, you have to pick like one one or the other. You either have to pick being LGBTQ or you have to pick um, staying with the church. You can't have both. So it's if churches want to keep their memberships, and and that's something that we're seeing across the board, um, at least in Canada. I don't know what the states is like, but. I know in Canada that um, the uh, church attendance is, is low across the board and, and a lot of folks, like they're still religious, but they're not attending church. And a lot of that, especially with younger generations is because of that stereotype of they're, they're not welcoming of all people, not necessarily just LGBTQ, but other groups as well. So if churches can um, take active steps, like you said, uh, participate in Pride festivities have year-round um, things going on for LGBTQ and other audiences as well. That's going to really um, make it so that members of, of uh, a church stay um, and, and maybe some new people even come as well. Um, and churches, as we know, play such an important role in, in small towns and they're such community centers and community builders. And um, so any positive thing that a church can do to support LGBT folks, it's going to go a huge way, um, not just in small town, but I think across um, the entire world. Even as a, as a straight married uh, middle-aged woman, um, we were looking for a new church in the last few years, just looking for one with more, you know, children's programming and that, and specifically chose an affirming church because I didn't want the church that was just kind of like, well, we won't commit any hate crimes against you on church property. You know, I wanted the church that's actually saying everyone is welcome here. We're excited that you're here. We want you here, you know, and there's, it's just such a huge difference, Um, you know, and I think speaking to the, you know, the farm kids staying home and still coming out that the more, people we can have out and visible in the community who are existing members of that community. You know, if you've known somebody since birth, it's harder to suddenly decide they're strange and terrifying rather than it being an outsider coming in. So AJ, many small towns have started pride events and festivals. If someone is looking to start a pride committee in their town or looking to join an existing committee, do you have any examples of um, what makes a successful event? or anything that works particularly well for smaller communities? Yeah, so um, in Ontario, there's um, 
just shy of 100 Pride organizations. So they're as big as Toronto Pride and as small as, um, I'm going to get the name wrong, but I believe it's Portland, Ontario. It's in Eastern Ontario. It's a 500 person town. And every Pride organization offers something different and they really cater to their community. And I think that's something that is always going to be successful for um, each Pride organization is finding what works for that community. So um, King Carden, um, which is my hometown, their Pride is extremely successful for a variety of reasons. And one of it is that they've really tapped into um, the, the festival scene that happens in King Carden. So in the summer months, there's a variety of festivals. So the Scottish Festival, the Blues Fest, um, a variety of different um, other ones. And they try to find those community partnerships. And that's something I would really recommend to um, any other pride organizations, especially in rural communities, figure out how you can partner and leverage the success of other festivals or other organizations. Um, and it doesn't even have to be anything big. Like a lot of people th think of um, pride as these big elaborate things in Toronto and New York City and San Francisco. They don't need to be that. It, it can just be like 50 people walking down the street holding a pride flag and, and a couple of stores having some rainbow stickers on the front door. And it's, it's really just about showing that your community is welcoming and accepting of LGBTQ folks. Um, and, and at the end of the day, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if your community is spending $5 or $5 million. It's just make sure that you're, you're doing something and make sure that it's, yes, celebrate Pride Month in June, but also make sure that you're celebrating and educating uh, yourself and the community year round. Um, AJ, looking over your work, one of the concerns you pushed forward was the idea of rainbow washing. There's definitely been an explosion in the last few years of what you can purchase with rainbows on it. Yeah, so for the listeners who aren't aware of what rainbow washing is, um, it's uh, those organizations that basically plaster uh, the rainbow um, look over their products um, for typically just for the month of June. So if you've ever been on Facebook in the month of June and you scroll through all the companies that you like, <laughs> it will just be rainbowed everywhere. And at first glance, it's like, oh, great. Look, especially for myself as a gay person, you would think, great, look at all these companies that love me and celebrate me. But the problem with that is, is that if you actually look into some of these companies' practices, it's all just performative. It's all, it's just a marketing trick. And it's, some companies are worse than others. Like some companies will have a pride um, logo on all their social media accounts. And that same month, they'll also be donating to a bunch of anti-gay um, campaigns. So it's, it's really odd. And then again, and then there's also the companies who it's that all the, their only pride kind of related initiatives is just the month of June. And they just, again, slap their uh, rainbow logo up on social media and maybe they'll put out like a bag of Doritos or the rainbow coloring for whatever reason. It's like, okay, that's nice. But like, what are you actually doing? So it's, if you look at, so some uh, case examples to look at. So Bud Light, for example, um, when you buy um, a six pack of their um, rainbow cans, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, during the month of June, they'll donate to uh, Rainbow Railroad, uh, which is an organization that helps LGBTQ refugees around the world come to Canada. Um, so they're actually doing something. 
and it's so you can get any rainbow bud light in iowa i don't think yeah no, i think it's a canadian Not in our town. Um, <laughs> but it's so it's like companies do things so it's like but at the same time it's not a bad thing that these companies are um doing rainbow stuff and showing celebration and like some stores like walmart and target will have like rainbow displays or you go to like a bookstore and there's all the, like the LGBTQ authors. And it's like, all of these things are great, but we need to start demanding more from people. So it's what is um, AT&T doing with LGBTQ stuff other than updating their logo? What is Home Depot doing? What is uh, Pfizer? Like, what are all these companies actually doing in Pride Month as well as year round um, for uh, LGBTQ uh, people in the public, but also their um, employees? So a lot of the times we'll see, and I know the U.S. is worse off in Canada, unfortunately, but when we look at like employee discrimination and things like health and health benefits, a lot of the times same-sex spouses won't get benefits um, just because that's the nature of how benefits are written. And again, it's more so in the States. It will say the wife will get X amounts uh, per year, but it's, again, as a gay man, I'm not going to have a wife. So it's, if I, if I have a husband, he's not going to get anything just because of the nature of how a policy is written. So it's, again, we just got to investigate more. And then it's even outside of kind of the big corporate companies of rainbow washing is businesses and um, social services and different things like that, who are also putting up rainbow flags and rainbow stickers. That can also be an issue sometimes too. So an example that's happening in Ontario right now, and I'm sure it's happening in the States as well, is around school boards. So in Ontario, there's um, multiple school boards, but there's two um, separate uh, types of school boards. So there's the public school boards, and then there's a Catholic school board system. So they're still both mandated by the Minister of Education, but they do have more flexibility. One, again, be more in public, and one has a Catholic lens to it. So we're seeing more and more school boards um, voting in favor of putting up rainbow flags at their schools or the school board office. Again, sounds great, but if you actually look at uh, the school board curriculum for the Catholic school board, um, it says the family life education curriculum teaches that true love can only be between a man and a woman, among other things. So it's, again, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, great, you're putting up a pride flag, but you're also teaching the gay kids that you're celebrating that they're never going to have true love. So it's, we got to, again, say yes, do celebrate, but demand more. My eyes just like rolled all the way around at that. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's so bizarre to me that it's, you know, be proud, but don't expect to actually be treated as an equal, you know, yep. don't, don't expect to actually be able to visit your partner in the hospital or have custody of your own children or yep. whatever else. So one of our goals for this podcast is to provide support for farming parents. Do you have any suggestions for resources for parents to foster healthy and open discussions, um, such as programs, books, uh, resources for our schools, or anything else of that nature? Yeah, so there's um, a variety of stuff online. Um, I'm probably going to name more Canadian things, and i don't not too aware of U.S.-based stuff. Uh, but for the listeners who are in Canada, or if you just want to go to these Canadian websites, um, there's organizations such as LGBT Youth Line, 
So there are crisis support, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, networking for LGBTQ youth who um, need support. Kids Help Phone is another one. Um, they have a variety of different resources. Um, in the States, actually, there's an organization called the Trevor Project. Uh, so they help um, LGBTQ youth, um, and they're probably the LGBTQ um, youth voice um, in, in the state. So they're a really great um, resource to uh, connect with. Um, something that I, I tell a lot of people through my presentations is that we, um, in general, although there's exceptions, when we talk about LGBTQ folks, we do an okay job at talking about and advocating for the LGBTs, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual folks. But when it comes to the T, so, the tra so trans individuals, we don't do as good of a job. And a lot of times it's just nervousness and, and just misunderstanding. Even though they're part of the acronym and part of the community, th there are separate issues with in uh, gender identity versus sex, sexual or orientation. So a really, really good documentary that I recommend everyone watches is called uh, Disclosure. It's on Netflix. Um, so it looks at Hollywood's representation of uh, trans individuals. So it talks about how trans folks are portrayed both in history and modern day and the causes and the roots around it. And it's, again, I've been, I've, I've made my entire um, undergrad degree around LGBTQ stuff. And I've always kind of viewed myself as an ally to all and all that coriness, but watching this documentary it really opened my eyes and made me realize, you know what? I don't know enough about the trans experience. I don't know. I didn't realize that there are um, movies and TV shows that I love that depict trans people in a really awful way. And I think, for, especially for parents, it's kids watch a lot of content. Even, even if you like can monitor how much TV time or screen time that your kids get, they, they watch stuff when they go over to their friend's house. And it's even like things that are made for kids, like more so like some older movies, but a lot of movies and TV shows depict trans folks in very stereotypical ways of victims and um, in, in weird like um, sex worker ways. And it, it's just not right and doesn't depict trans people as people. It, it just paints them as kind of a stereotype. And um, so anyway, so Disclosure on Netflix is um, a documentary that I have very highly recommend. Thinking about that we do see trans people, especially in the media as being victims or predators and, yep. or jokes or yep. kind of all three, but not anywhere in between. Yeah. And uh, the Disclosure documentary covers this. So um, in the movie, uh, Bruce Almighty, the uh, character main character ends up kissing a woman and then finds out that the woman is a trans woman so was born a man and there's this running gig for about 10 minutes straight of him barfing and rinsing out his mouth and brushing his teeth and showering and boiling himself with hot water just because he kissed a woman who happened to be born a man and it's it's such like a well-known loved movie and you watch it and you're like, you know what? That is disgusting how you would portray a human being. And it, so it's, it's those kind of things that we really need to put a more um, analytical lens on, especially when we're talking about um, children and, and what they're consuming and absorbing and whether that's TV or movies or video games or what they're being taught in school. We really need to say, 
our people and not just LGBTQ folks, but indigenous people and, and black folks and Asian folks, are they being talked about in the correct narrative? Are, they, are their experiences actually being, being validated? Um, and I think that's extremely important. Well, and I think, especially for more commonly, you know, rural folks of a, a certain age, as some yeah. of us are getting to, there's a lot of, you know, if I don't know the right way to talk about it, I'm just not going to talk about it at all. And absolutely, we should be educating ourselves on people's preferred language and appropriate ways mm-hmm. to refer to people. But you can be respectful no matter what, and you can still treat humans like humans who are to be valued without having the best language to use. You know, and I, I think that, well, I don't know how to address it, so I'm not going to becomes an excuse real quickly. Of, you know, yeah. well, it's not my problem. Yeah. Um, So one of the questions I like to ask is what fair contest could you dominate? And this can be a real contest, made up contest. We don't care. What fair contest could I dominate? Oh gosh, so much pressure. Um, I'm going to start singing. I probably. Yeah, I know, really. (laughs) I'd probably say a pumpkin pie eating contest. I love pumpkin pie i think it's the best flavor and i could just eat pies all day long so probably if there was a fair with a pumpkin pie eating contest i probably would probably would win i'd say so what are you controversial controversial (laughs) how much now a cool whip or actual whipped cream and b appropriate ratio of pie to whipped topping we're gonna get. We're gonna have to have a content or. Okay, we're gonna. Oh, we're gonna get really technical here. Yeah. Um, I just like like a little dollop of whipped cream, so just like a little spray. Um, but are we talking like canned whipped cream or like actual from a cow whipped in a whipped with a whisk? I mean, I don't live on a farm, so I don't have access to a cow directly. Uh, so my go-to is typically uh, just like the spray can. Okay. Um, but, but if I, if I had the choice, um, so, if, so if you have, um, some actual whipped cream handy, feel free to send it my way. Okay. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure if we were talking, you know, I think the stuff in the can might actually be dairy based unlike my oh. preferred cool whip. I also am a pumpkin pie connoisseur, mm. but I'm a big believer in a, a firm layer of cool whip. <laughs> is disgusting and i would normally never use cool whip on anything but jello and pumpkin pie so now it's it's time for my favorite segment which we call cussing and discussing so this <laughs> is where we discuss the good the bad the ugly the funny things um aj feel free to join us on this one so aj do you have anything you'd like to cuss or discuss this week um or would you rather arlene went first i see she's back yeah you, you folks go first and i'm sure i will jump in I will unmute and hope that my internet uh, stays connected. I did one of those, uh, text the husband downstairs and say, kick some kids off of devices so that my internet (laughs) will start working better. So first we'll curse um, uh, rural internet, which um, sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And then my other cussing for this week is going to be, I mean, we've all been cursing it for a long time now, but pandemics suck. 
and um, my kids have colds this week, and I'm pretty sure that's what it is because one of the vaccinated ones is the one who had the first symptoms, but now there's a cough, so that meant we had to go and get tested today. But I will say thank you to science because um, the test they got today didn't have to like go right up and touch their brains. They have um, a different kind of test for kids. So it's just like a bunch of swabbing in the mouth and then just a little bit up the nose. And uh, they use the same swab, but they do the mouth first and then the nose. So that's also a bonus. And we got all three of them done with no tears. So that was good. And then in typical Canadian fashion, we went for Timbits at Tim Hortons afterwards. So it all worked out. Katie, do you have something to cuss and discuss? Arlene, I'm going to cry just thinking about Timbits. Okay. <laughs> um, my dad's side of the family lives in northwestern Pennsylvania, so actually not as far from Ontario. Um, from I mean, Ontario. it's good that you know what Timbits are, though. I do know what Timbits are because they have them in Pennsylvania. Um, they have them lots of places, just not in Iowa. The the discussing I had for this week is, you know, so AJ, our kids are three and four and we've been trying to, to educate them about different people and, um, you know, the, the four-year-old approach to, to trans folks and that, that basically, you know, we trust who someone says they are and not our guesses to, to who they are by what they look like you know that if somebody looks like what we think a girl would look like but they say they're a boy then they're a boy and we just go with that and it's honestly already come back to bite me in the ass which i didn't really anticipate um our daughter brought a cat in from the barn and is quite insistent that the cat is female and the cat is quite clearly not female and I'm, you know, making appointments for the cat to be dealt with so that we don't get more little cats. And, you know, I took the the little girl into the vet with me and was asking for a neuter. And the little girl is saying, you know, about her girl cat. And I was just like, we're just don't argue with her. We're just, this is not a conversation I'm prepared to have. So I did not expect that that was what was going to be the hard part of the conversation about transgendered folks and, um, you know, acceptance was. That reminds me of a story when my daughter was younger, she asked me one time, you know, one of those like back of the car conversations. So she's back behind me and I'm driving and she says, mommy, how do you tell the difference between a boy cat and a girl cat? So I went all in on anatomy and how you know we have different parts and cats have different parts and I went all specific and then she's like or you could just ask what their name is <laughs> it's like <laughs> yep yeah that's true that that would be another another option <laughs> yeah did she mean to ask the cat themselves or the, the no I think that oh I think the owner but I mean yeah sometimes cats will let you know what they want to be called too I guess yeah, yeah. okay so AJ do you have anything to to cuss and discuss now uh, I think it's probably just going to be some fuel for the two of you is I have no idea how parents have handled this pandemic. It's I, I have no children. I am a single person. So if any callers are also single in Southwestern Ontario and gay, find me. Uh, but uh, I don't know how parents have dealt with just the pandemic in general and school and especially uh, for you two folks and, and the other uh, listeners who are full-time moms and farmers and have also had to be a teacher and um, 
a doctor and a nurse and everything else that comes with being a mom or a dad. And I don't know how you folks have not lost your minds. I personally, I mean, I didn't think I would ever say this incredibly grateful to live in a state where our governor apparently does not care if we all die, which seems like an interesting approach for an elected official (laughs) who presumably needs folks to vote for them. Our governor has done as little as possible really with, you know, shutting things down and protecting us, which upside means that our kids have been able to, to go to school um, and daycare and that. Honestly, I've never been as glad that my kids are young. So they're Mm -hmm. not, I mean, they have friends, but they're like three-year-old friends. You know, they're not missing prom. They're not missing varsity sports. They're not, you know, missing college visits. And also that we're lucky enough to have this acreage because I, Mm -hmm. you know, I, one of my cousins has twin daughters that are the same age as our son. So three and a half. And they live in a condo in Santa Monica. And the idea of being in lockdown in a condo in Santa Monica with twin (laughs) three-year-olds makes me want to die, honestly. (laughs) Um, So upside, at least I can just boot my kids out the door. But certainly for the folks who've been expected to work from home with their kids at home and especially their partner at home for a year and a half, God bless them. I don't know how they're doing it either. So Arlene, maybe you can fill us in on how that's going. I mean, September was, has been, you know, like um, life changing to have them actually back in school because I mean, AJ knows we, our schools closed for, you know, however, whatever number of times and you know, they, they closed in April and didn't open back up again until September. And that was, yeah, it was a, a long stretch of togetherness and the, the online learning was not pretty. And, um, but yeah, just having a few hours now, I mean, obviously not this week because now they're, we're back waiting for test results, but at least the, the promise that there will be days when they can be out of the house and, and with their friends and yeah, yeah, it's, it hasn't been great, but yeah, like Katie said, I mean, being on a farm is, as challenging as it's been has also been a huge bonus, you know, to, to have outdoor space. And, you know, I definitely feel for people who are in cities and, and, you know, like, yes, it means that our rural housing market has exploded, but if, if someone wants to come here to get a backyard, then, you know, all the power to them. I think that, that the, the life that we've had the last year and a half has definitely highlighted some of the ways that we have, huge advantages for living in the country and, and being able to live this this lifestyle so i mean pandemic life sucks for everybody there's there's no real good sides to uh, we give it zero stars pandemics big thumbs down i will say i'm finding it easier now that people have given up all the hobbies they started at the beginning because when my <laughs> social media was just full of you know sourdough, sourdough starters yeah oh. and knitting projects and everybody was like, I've watched every single episode of everything that's ever been on Netflix. I'm like, cool. I watched some more Daniel Tiger. <laughs> yeah. um, we watched every episode 15 <laughs> times. <laughs> but upside now, my job has always been remote. I work for a software company. And finally, people in rural areas are starting to understand working from home. 
like that you have to actually work um and that you know it's a it's not a scam that it is an actual job so that's been nice that there's a little more respect for that uh, and i do think that the you know the push to get better access to internet you know was was a thing before and it was something politicians talked about but but knowing that people couldn't access their jobs and kids couldn't go to school and you know like that so many of those resources really do depend on good connectivity I think that hopefully that's going to push for some change for our rural people. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but I feel like you're right, Arlene, that I'm hearing a lot less of that rhetoric that it's the internet is just for Netflix, you mm-hmm. know, playing video games, like cool. It's also where my job lives and my kids' classes and our entire connection to the outside world, but you know, that's fine. And our podcast, so <laughs> we need the internet. AJ, we really appreciate having you on and having you come chat with us. And our uh, our community seems to be heavy on gay dads, so I feel like you know if you wanted a if you wanted to move to a farm, we could probably Perfect. maybe not find you somebody who's already a gay dad. But I feel like our <laughs> our demographic might skew heavily, not heavily more. <laughs> we haven't done the stats yet. We haven't oh, done the you have in our lane. I have. <laughs> Yeah, you're extensive market research. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have anything else, Arlene? Do you want to? You always do so. the thank you. I I can't do this. Sorry. Yeah, it does actually sound quiet in my house at the moment. I'm not sure what he did with everyone. But... <laughs> I know it got quiet out here too. I assume Jim drugged them or something. Yeah. All right. Okay. Arlene, we'll call that. You want to wrap up? <laughs> okay. You want me to start again? this is what we're just going to leave in it's just going to be a super awkward (laughs) (laughs) it's just going to shut down the zoom thank you so much aj for joining us for this episode we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and for uh, educating us and our listeners and we hope that everybody if they don't have a pride in their community will uh, start one or support one or travel to the next town and uh, attend one next june or whenever whenever pride happens in your community. So thanks very much, AJ. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Please join us again next week while we're catching up with Maida Edwards, who will be talking to us about eating disorder recovery and raising kids on the farm. You can find us as usual on social media at Barnyard Language on Instagram and TikTok, Barnyard Pod on Twitter, and on Facebook at Barnyard Language Podcast. And you can ask to join our private group, which is Barnyard Language Group also on Facebook. We'd love it if you'd support our Patreon, help, you know, support the coffee fund that keeps us all going, and we'll see you next week.